If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Again, we're going to be taking up the portion of Matthew 6 called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6. If you will, uh, let's recite this together as this perhaps may be our last time. Actually, um, this is going to be my last week with, with this prayer. I do believe I'm going to need one more week in order to finish for various reasons, for the sake of time and just the, the breadth of what I'm addressing this morning. I, I, I do think I'll need an, another week, so if you will bear with me in that. And, um, but let us together um, recite again the Lord's Prayer Verse 9, Jesus said, pray then this, in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We now draw to the end of the Lord's Prayer. This is the final portion that our Lord commended to us as to how we are to pray and approach God. We have looked at the prayer along the lines of really a basic outline of an address to God, and then we looked at six petitions, and then we are ending with a doxology. We are ending with a doxology. There are a few things I must say before we begin to consider the doxology, that last portion that is found in the second half of, of verse 13, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. There are a few things that we must consider before we begin. And the first thing is that this is indeed a doxology. This is a doxology. What is a doxology, you might ask? Well, doxology means, in the simplest terms, a word of praise. It is a declaration of praise to God. It is a a, a declaring something about God that is true concerning what he has done and who he is. Doxologies litter our scriptures. We have doxologies all over the word of God. Two of the more prominent doxologies, the first one found in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13, as David has received uh, the tribute that is to be brought, that was brought into the house for the building of the, the, the temple of God. He is rejoicing over this. And here's David's response to this. He, he doesn't praise man, by the way. David praises God because of what he has done in the hearts of those who are bringing the tribute. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion 
O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. And so this is a doxology unto God. Oftentimes it is, again, as I said, following great works of God. Perhaps my favorite doxology is found in a transitional period in the book of Romans. Romans 11, verses 33 to 36. Many say that, uh, that the beginning of the, 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 the book of Romans is, is, is from, from chapters 1 through 11, is the theology of our salvation in Christ Jesus followed by the practical outworking of that, the, the doing of that theology, chapters 12 through, six, 12 through 16. But there is a hinge there that exists between the theology and the practical theology of outworking those things in the life of the believer, and it is a doxology that is found in the Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his truths and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And in light of that, Wonderful truths there. The sinfulness of man and the grace of God. Grace of God in saving man and keeping man and delivering him to that final day in which the heavens will and the earth be to that former place of, of its glory before the fall. The right response is indeed doxology. And when we pray and when we come before God, doxology is fitting. And so the first point of consideration is, indeed, this is a doxology. The second point of consideration is that we have a bit of a problem. We indeed have a bit of a problem here. If you notice in many of your translations, that portion of the scriptures is in brackets, or it's actually missing if you have the ESV, and it's found in your footnotes. This is because many do not believe that this was a part of the original text of scripture. There are many who believe that what we have in the doxology was an addition that was added later on, perhaps by someone who, who rewrote these things, who was perhaps someone who's taught and preached the word of God and saw that it was fitting to have this doxology in the prayer. There are many who consider this who are good men who consider this not to be a part of the divine record. In fact, Thomas Watson's standard work does not include doxology 
the doxology in his treatise on the Lord's Prayer. That's a standard work on the Lord's Prayer. Anybody who is studying the Lord's Prayer, you go to Thomas Watson's work, and yet he does not address it. And many others do not address it. James Montgomery Boyce, he does not address it in his commentary. Many commentaries that I came to, it was not even addressed. Many questions have been raised, of course, about the authenticity of the words found in this doxology. And of course, there's legitimate reason to question whether or not this was a part of the divine record that God gave to us in the original manuscripts. First of all, it does not appear, here are some of the reasons, by the way, that people do not, do not believe that it was found in the original text. First of all, it does not appear in the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts. Those that most of our modern translations are founded upon, those manuscripts, most of those do not contain this portion, the doxology that we are now, that now is before us. And without getting into uh, a significant um, uh, discussion about textual criticism, let it just rest there that that's where we, one of the divides we find in this is found there is because it's not found in those, what we call the most reliable the ones that were the oldest manuscripts. The King James Version, if you have the King James Version, it, it, it flows like it's, it's not even missing. It's, it's there. There's no, there's no parentheses. There's no brackets there to offset that portion of Scripture. It is there. Now, we deal with this in a lot of other portions of the Word of God or several other portions. We deal with it with John 8, 1 through 11. With the, we have the, the woman who was caught in adultery. If you look in your Bible, that's in brackets. That's in brackets. That was not found in the older manuscripts. And there are other portions. If you look at the last part of Mark chapter 16, that ending part that it talks about the, the, the sign that a person is a believer and has those miraculous gifts that attend those who would be believers, that portion is missing from those oldest manuscripts. And so because those are in brackets, and again, not necessarily by many scholars considered to be a part of the, the, the divine record, then they are put in parentheses, or they are or brackets, or they're put in footnotes at the bottom of your Bible. Now, I must say that the reason they do put them in footnotes and the reason they do put them in brackets because there's not certainty there. There is, I believe there's conviction perhaps by many that it's not a part of the divine record, but there's not full 100 proof that it's not there. So that's why they do at least have it tag along with the rest of the Lord's Prayer um, that we have before us. Third, secondly, they do not believe it's a part of the divine record because it does not appear in Luke's account of the prayer at all. Luke's account largely ends with these words, 
And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Now, many believe that this portion of Scripture was, was, was penned by someone who led worship. Um, it was, that that was put in there for liturgical purposes, for the purpose of the flow of worship. It would have been right and proper for a prayer by a Jew to end with doxology. And so they thought it was fitting to, it's what many believe that was fitting to add this in here. So there are a lot of men, a lot of good men, I believe, who do not hold that this is a part of the divine record. So we need to ask ourselves the question because I think we have to, as those who hold to the infallibility of the word of God, the inerrancy of scripture, we have to ask ourselves this question, should we dismiss this or should we teach it as we do other portions that carry with them a measure of uncertainty that they belong in the divine record? Should we dismiss it or should we teach it? I, I believe that we should teach it personally for various reasons, and I will, I'll just kind of briefly go through those with you and let you know why I will do that, and then I will, I will do that. <laughs> I will do that. First of all, I believe that we should because we are not certain. We are not certain that if it, it does not belong there. I don't think there's 100% certainty that it does not belong in the original text. Secondly, I believe that because in his providence, God allowed this portion to make its way into the divine record, I think we need to give a weighty consideration to it because of that. We understand that God is sovereign over all of these things, even the, the, the canon and all those things that are part of that. And so because of that, I believe that we need to give it a a, a hearty and, I believe, a strong consideration that we, are, we have before us the word of God. Second, thirdly, I believe that because it was considered by the early church to be a part of the worship of God, who are not far removed from those original manuscripts, I think we need to consider it. In fact, it is found in what is called the Didache, which is an early church manual for worship that was found in the church. They included this portion of the Lord's Prayer, the doxology in that. And so because the early church, it was now traditional now, that's been passed on for, for really, you got to think about it, over a century to the church that this was a part of the divine writ, writ that we need to consider it, perhaps it was, that there is potential, and I would say personally, I think we need to consider it with great weightiness that this was a part of the divine record. A fourth reason I believe that we need to consider it is because Paul gives, the Apostle Paul gives some credence to this portion being included in the divine text. He gives a somewhat parallel rendering of the doxology in 
2 Timothy 4.18. Remember, the, the, the Lord's Prayer ends like this. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 2 Timothy 4.18 reads like this. It reads, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Fifthly, I believe that we should give consideration to this, to the doxology that although it may not be scripture, it is scriptural. So what do you mean by that, Pastor? Are you playing words with us? Are you playing games with us? And you you mincing words with us? No, I mean scriptural in the fact that these words, whether they are a part of the original text or not, these words are scriptural. How many of you would have a problem ending your prayers with such wonderful words exalting the majesty of our God for yours, O Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Of course, we would have no problem with that. It's biblical. The sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God, the glorious excellencies of God, the, the, the immutability of God, the eternality of God, all those are found there in that text right there. Why would we not consider it then? And finally, because it is scriptural, I think we need to consider it because it does not do any damage to anything doctrinally in a major way, or actually anything doctrinally. There's no way to say that that's not biblically true. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen? Amen. I think we need to consider it. John MacArthur has said this, although he, he doesn't believe it's a part of the original text, the original account, he says, although they may not have been in the original account, he says may not have been, the words are perfectly fitting in this passage and express truths that are thoroughly scriptural. So let us consider this morning the doxology. I'm going to use the Westminster Larger Catechism question to frame my, my outline this morning. In the question, question number 196, it is asked, what doth the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And it reads, the answer, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer which is, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, teacheth us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or any, any other creature, but from God. And with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency, 
in regard whereof, as he is able and willing to help us, so we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that, we, that he would, and quietly to rely upon him, that he will fulfill our request and to testify this our desire and assurance, we say amen. And here's my outline this morning to consider the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. Enforcing arguments, eternal ascription, and emboldened assurance. Enforcing arguments, eternal ascription, and emboldened assurance. Let's consider the enforcing arguments that flow from the Lord's Prayer. Our Lord says, for, for, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That means because. He's letting us know the ground upon which we might petition the Lord. He's letting us know here uh, the, 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 the reason that we have to come before God and ask of the things that we have asked of him. He says, for. He says we are making here arguments. And these arguments that he's saying here, these arguments are not, as, as according to the, to the catechism we just read, these arguments here are not based upon us. We're not enforcing, the, we not ha- don't have these enforcing arguments that derive in us or that come from us. These arguments come from God. These arguments derive from who God is and what he has done. How are we able to go before God? How are we able to plead with God? How do we pray and ask God for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, for God to provide for our daily bread, for our sins to be forgiven as we have forgiven others, for God to not lead us into temptation but to deliver us from evil except that we ground those petitions upon the God who answers prayers. He is the God who answers prayers. And it is incumbent upon us to ground our prayers in this God. That if our prayers are grounded in something in us, then we are amiss with what true prayer is. Our prayers must be grounded in the nature of God and God alone. For he is the sovereign, omnipotent, glorious God. And so we make arguments before God, enforcing arguments before God. Sounds pretty rough. We arguing with God? The language here is of, of when we talk about the arguments here, this, this is the language of, of law, and it's, it's a pleading with God. We heard those words there. We, we make a plea deal. We plead with God. We argue with God. We present our arguments before God. 
we say, God, answer my prayer. Here is my case before you, God. Answer my prayer. And why should I answer that prayer? Because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Job, in a sense, argued with God. In Job 23.4, he says, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments as he pleads with God. We're asking the question, in other words, why should God hear our prayers? Again, not because of us, not because of any merit in man or any creature, but because of God. A.W. Pink says, it is a plea and argument to enforce our petitions. What then is the ground for God to answer our prayers except himself. In his work, A Guide to Prayer, A Guide to Prayer, Isaac Watts lays out for us several ways in which we make arguments for why our prayers should be answered. And he's, he's going through the scriptures here, and he's, he's saying here, these are the reasons why our prayers, why we, how we plead with God, the arguments that we bring before God that he would answer our prayers. He says, first of all, I'm gonna, not going to do all of them that he mentioned, but I'm going to do a few of them here. He says, we may plead with God from the greatness of our wants, our dangers, or our sorrows. So some of our petitions that when we plead with God, we are pleading with God and we're reminding God of our sorrow, of our, our dangers and our trouble. We are pleading with God in light of the fact that we are poor beggars at times. And so we ground our prayers at times upon that, that indeed we are needy. And so we plead with God, help me, God. I need your help. I am unable to handle this. I'm unable to do this. I need your help, God. You know what I stand in need of. You know it all, God. And so we plead with God at times based upon our great need and our sorrows. Another argument that we plead with God upon is drawn, he says here, from are several relations in which God stands to man, particularly to his own people. And so we plead with God at times based upon him as creator. Secondly, we plead with God at times to answer our prayers based upon him as being our God. And then at times we plead with God based upon him as our father. And that's our plea at times. We, we argue with God. We come before God and we, we plead with him to answer our prayers because he is our father. This is, this is the, even in the words of Luke's gospel, when Luke spoke of those who, he, he encouraged us and ex exhorted us to ask and to seek and to knock 
He says, why should we do that? He says, now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? By the way, my children use this at times. And they'll say, well, I'm asking you for this, Daddy. Why are you giving me this? But here, he's arguing here from, by the way, from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if, if you being evil, as he goes on to say, or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So sometimes our arguments are drawn from the relationships that we have with God. He's our Father. He's our Father. What a, what a, a marvelous ground we might ask of God. God is our Father. Let that sink into your hearts right now and deepen your souls. If you ever, if you ever doubt that God is your Father, if you are, you are wrestling with that reality, and you've put your faith in Christ, and you've rested upon the work of Christ, but you're not, you struggle at times. God, you are my Father, but I'm, I'm not sure sometimes. I struggle at times. Be reminded of the Word of God. If you've trusted in Him, If you've put your faith in Christ, there's confidence that he is your father. You can rest upon that. Thirdly, he says that we can plead with God or argue with God based upon the covenant of grace and other promises from the word of God. Other promises from the word of God. And so at times when you read the scriptures, you have your the saints of old. And they'll go before God and they'll plead with God to answer their prayers. And they'll say, because you said it. Because you said it. God, you said you would do it. You said you would do it, God. I always think of of Elijah, a man with a like nature as we have. And he went before God and he pleaded with God as he saw the iniquity of Israel all around him. And he pleaded with God. Oh, God, shut up the heavens. Why? Why would he? Why would he pray such a prayer as that? Because God had said that if my people disobey me, he says, I will shut up the heavens. And so he he pleaded with God based upon the fact that God said, I will do it. I will do it. Sometimes we plead with God based upon, it's another one that, Isaac Watts said, because of the name and honor of God in the world, because of the name and the honor of God, because we want God's name to be honored, and we know that God also wants his name to be honored. In Joshua 7, 9, it says, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut us off, cut off our name from the earth. 
And, it's, and, and Joshua asks the question, and what will you do for your great name? He's asking for deliverance right now. He's pleading with God for deliverance. Why? Because he, he knows that, that, that God's name is tied to the answering of that prayer. His name is tied to the answering of that prayer. See, we, we, get, we understand this. You look at your checkbook and you say, I don't know how it's going to happen, God, but I know what your word says. I know what your word says. Matthew 6, 33, that if, if that all we need to do what is God will supply our needs, that if we ask him, he's our father and he will provide for us. Indeed. He says we plead with God. We argue based on our former experiences and the experiences of, our, of ourselves, of others as well. In Psalm 22, if you'll turn there with me quickly. Psalm 22. It's messianic prayer. Beginning verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. That you are holy. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And here he says, in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And so he's grounding his the answer of this prayer on the fact that their fathers, that God had delivered their fathers, that he had been merciful to them and he had delivered them. And now in essence, he's saying here now, God, deliver me, deliver me. He says to you, they cried out and were delivered. You and you, they trusted and were not disappointed. You, they trusted and were not disappointed. He says in final argument, he says, we argue from the fact that we are in Christ. He uses these words. Argument is the name and meditation. It's made in the name and upon the meditation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he uses John 16, 23 through 24. He says, in that day, you will seek, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. And so this is where at times we say, we, we finish our prayers with what? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And that's not just a way to end our prayers. That's grounding our prayers. And that's grounding our prayers in, in the reality that we come to God in the name of Jesus. We so casually at times and mindlessly just say that at the end of our prayers because we hear it all the time. We're so used to it. And it's, it's not like that it's wrong. We can, we can be guilty in that of vain repetition. 
But it is a reality that our prayers are grounded in the person and the work of Christ. That we can make that argument. Because I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. It says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And now Jesus also makes argument. And the argument that he makes is from the divine excellencies of God. His prayer, his argument, he says that we are to plead before God are based upon the divine excellencies of God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We see this in other portions of Scripture. If you'll turn to Daniel chapter 9 here, Daniel chapter 9, we'll see that this is true of those of the past. Daniel also pleaded best based upon the excellencies of God. He pleaded with God. He made his argument before God based upon the excellencies of God. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 4, it says, I prayed to the Lord, my God, and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He he reminds us in verse 5 here, it's not based upon us. He says, we have sinned, committed iniquity in verse 5, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Verse 6, moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness, he goes again, he grounds it in the reality of who God, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, Open shame as it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. He says to the Lord, our God, belong compassion and forgiveness For we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. You can go on and on in that that portion right there. He he continually over and over again, over and over again, he commends to us the the, the excellencies of, of God, that God is a forgiving God, that God is a God of compassion, a God of mercy. God, have mercy upon us in our exile right now. Be, have mercy upon us in our, in our time of trouble right now. We have sinned against you, God. Don't release us. Don't help us because now we have repented now. He didn't say that. He didn't say now because we have been good for a while, God. Now rescue us. No, he's saying, God, because of who you are, because of who you have been in the past, you are a forgiving God. You keep your promises. You are a God who is compassionate and loving and kind, and, and you are a God of mercy. And so in light of that, God, please forgive us. Forgive us and rescue us 
from this pit that we are in and rescue us from this pit. And so this reality is grounded in and our plea is grounded in the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God, and the glory of God. Just a couple of points of application. First of all, this portion reminds us again that prayer is about God. It's about God. We began the prayer with God, our Father, and we end the prayer with God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Prayer should begin with God and end with God because it's about God. It is about God. It's not about man. It's not about anything else. It's not about Whatever you may name, it is ultimately about God, the glory of God. Secondly, in light of the God that we are exalting here, we should have confidence in prayer and not doubt. We should have confidence in prayer, not doubt. We should have confidence because God is sovereign and God is omnipotent. We understand these realities in regard to when we, when we start considering theology. When we start talking about praying, sometimes we lose sight of that. So we need to pray in, without doubting God. We need to pray with confidence that God is able, omnipotent, sovereignty, and God is willing. He is willing to answer our prayers. As we sat up here, as I sat up here at the beginning of the service, unbeknownst to most of you, my notes were not printed. My notes were not printed. I had some, quite a bit of technical difficulty this morning. And I was sitting in the back, uh, sitting up here and thinking that, Lord, what am I going to do? And I began to pray. I began to pray. And as I began to pray, I felt my heart growing anxious and the doubt creeping in. And I began to pray. I said, Lord, I don't doubt you. I don't doubt you. And praise be to God that Brother Allen was able to get those notes printed in the other room. I am thankful to God. Thankful to God. But we should not doubt God, right? That was a minor thing, wasn't it? That was a minor thing for God to do. And in light of that, I don't think our prayer should just be about the minor things. We need to pray big prayers. We have, an, we have a what kind of God? He is, he's omnipotent, right? We have a God who is sovereign over all of creation. We need to pray big prayers. What do you mean big prayers? We need to pray prayers that are consistent with the one to whom we are praying to. In our hymn book, hymn number 409, entitled, Come My Soul, 
your plea prepared. The second verse says this, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. None can ever ask too much. We can't ask too much of God. I don't know what you are praying for. You see, the, the, the content of our prayer conveys to us the trust that we have in God and what we believe about God. Do you believe that God can save your children? You say in your mind, you think in your mind, well, my children are 40 years old. My children are 50 years old. My children are long gone. They are in rebellion against God, open rebellion against God. God can save them. Oh, Lord, take away the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Pray, brothers and sisters, that Roe versus Wade will be demolished. We never thought in our time that we would ever see a time in which that evil would potentially be abolished. Pray, brothers and sisters, that that atrocious act of killing babies in the wombs, that it would end. Pray. Pray. Did you ever think, perhaps, that God can save our, 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 our governors, that he can save those, save those who are in legislation? Pray for them. Plead with God that God might have mercy upon them, that he would open their eyes, that they would see their sin, that they would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and truly be converted and then begin to legislate in light of that. Pray. Pray that God would bring to justice those who who thumb their nose at justice, who, who think that they are above the law. Pray that God would bring them to justice. Pray, pray big prayers, brothers and sisters, for our God is omnipotent. Our God is sovereign over all of creation. And his goal and and desire in all of this is that he would be glorified. Brothers and sisters, pray, pray unto our God. And make arguments. Some of the old writers, they talked of suing God. So in a reverent way, but they talked of suing God. Make arguments with God. Say, God, do this. You heard my prayer, God. Do this in light of what you've said. And who You are. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we indeed come to you and are reminded of the eternal truths of your word. We thank you that your word is true that does not return unto you void. You know each of us, Lord, this morning, where you stand in need, 
you know those things that we have petitioned you about, those things that we doubt, have doubted in the past as whether or not you were going to answer or able to answer, those prayers that we believe to be beyond reality. Lord, you can grant to us anything because, and all that we ask because you are an omnipotent God. In fact, you can grant us above and beyond what we ask or think. So, Lord, we, we pray. Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to trust you, Lord, to have confidence in you. As we come before you and, and plead and argue our case before you, that you would hear us, not based upon anything in us, because of who you are. And it's in our blessed Savior's name that we pray, and for his sake, amen.